0: For those of you who've been looking for season one of Solar Punk Presence but haven't been able to find it, here it is. Originally, it was published as part of Solar Punk Magazine's Solar Punk Futures podcast. We're reposting our episodes on our site to make them easier for you to listen to if you didn't catch them the first time. We hope you enjoy them. Also, don't forget to support us by spreading the word about Solar Punk Presence, writing us a review or subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com/solarpunkpresence. Hello and welcome to Solarpunk Presence, the companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures hosted by Solarpunk Magazine nonfiction editors extraordinaire Ariel Kroon and Christina Della Rocha. Ariel and I will be using this companion podcast to Solarpunk Futures to explore Solarpunk goings-on in the world today. We'll be interviewing all sorts of interesting people who are doing work in the here and now that will help us get to a Solarpunk future and we'll be talking to each other about the visions of a sustainable, equitable future integral to solar punk, and about issues we're curious about within the movement or genre, or whatever it is you want to call solar punk. And now, for this week's episode. Do you think the deep sea is dark? Totally, utterly, incorruptibly dark. In that case, Welcome to episode seven of Solar Punk Presence, inspired by the Lunar Punk issue of Solar Punk magazine that came out earlier this month and in which we learn that actually almost everything living in the deep sea glows, flashes, and or has headlights. We'll be talking today with doctor Steve Haddock, a senior scientist at the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and for short, in Moss Landing, California. He's the biggest bigwig in the field of deep-sea bioluminescence. Hi, Steve.
1: Hey, Christina.
0: (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for talking to us about bioluminescence, as you are one of the world's leading experts on deep-sea bioluminescence. A fun place to start would be with how bioluminescence works. What happens when an organism lights up? Or how does it happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, in some cases, Still trying to figure it out. But in general, bioluminescence is when an animal makes light or an organism, actually. It can, doesn't have to be an animal. And it happens when there's a chemical reaction, usually inside of their cells, between two molecules. There's a light emitting molecule that we call a luciferin, it reacts with oxygen. And that energy from that reaction produces light. But it doesn't happen. It gets accelerated by another molecule that we call a luciferase, which it just kind of brings the two together and, and it allows them to control when the light turns on and off. So we use these names luciferin for light emitter, but there's a different luciferin chemically in a firefly than there is in bacteria, than there is in a jellyfish. And so it's just a general term for the light emitting part of the bioluminescent reaction.
0: Yeah. So that's really interesting that. All of these different organisms are capable of <laughs> bioluminescence, and and I guess it must have evolved independently a number of times because I mean let's run through a list of organisms. So you said bacteria, yeah, and yeah. Um, of course some mushrooms can do it. What uh, some dinoflagellates? So a type of phytoplankton, unicellular photosynthetic yeah. plankton. Uh, what else is What else is on your list?
1: I mean it's almost easier to say the things that don't bioluminesce. Okay. Um, because in the ocean especially, there are so many things, um, from jellyfish to shrimp to squid to fish, sea stars, even clams. You know, there's there's at least a cu- couple of bioluminescent relatives in almost every group of marine invertebrates. There's even bioluminescent sharks.
0: Sharks. Yes. He said sharks right there through that distortion of Conducting an interview over Zoom.
1: Um, there's no bioluminescent mammals either on land or in the ocean.
0: Oh, well, that's um, very boring of us.
1: Yeah, I know. We think we're so special, but uh, <laughs> we actually.
0: Well, we'll have to it's change one of our
1: that. Biggest short shortcomings. Okay.
0: But are are there? Um,
1: and even other terrestrial vertebrates, and no flowering plants, no like green land plants do it, and uh, no birds, no uh, reptiles, things like that.
0: Okay, oh, so there are some things ripe for a genetic modification here, I think, um, because there that would go. be fun—glow yeah. um, in the dark birds and glow in the dark flowers. Um, so, what's your favorite yes. bioluminescent organism?
1: That's pretty hard to to choose a favorite. I mean, I guess comb jellies, these Tinafores, are definitely one of my favorites. That's one of the main groups of animals that that we work on.
0: In case you're wondering. Ctenophores, or the comb jellies as they're also known, look sort of like transparent grapes that swim, not by pulsing like jellyfish, but by beating rows of hair like cilia. And they're very, very cute. And I hope someday you have a chance to see some out in the ocean. And now back to Steve's list of his favorite bioluminescent organisms.
1: You know, even in a fish, which I'm kind of biased towards invertebrates instead of vertebrates, but there are some really spectacular fish displays that are like blindingly bright even you know to a person when you see them flash they're, they're just so incredibly bright or they have light organs all along their bellies that they look like the running lights of a you know of a train or a fancy souped up car oh that's um, cool
0: so have you been and in squid the deep sea have
1: really amazing bioluminescence
0: have you been in the yes deep sea i've been in the deep this. sea and seen this
1: i have seen i have seen some of it in you know with my eye from a submarine, but usually we at at the place where I work, we use remotely operated vehicles. So we will usually collect things down as deep as say four thousand meters, and then bring it back on the ship into the dark room and kind of explore their bioluminescence in the confines of the dark room. But having said that, we do have a new low light camera that we put on our sub, and so we can actually go down and fly around and film some of the things doing their bioluminescence in their own environment. That's a relatively new development. Like we, we didn't have good enough cameras until maybe the last five years to do that kind of thing. But now we can do it in 4K, full color, low light. And so you, you can see with the camera what we could see with our eye previously.
0: So what? So at 4,000 meters, which is very, very deep in the ocean, there's a couple miles, yes. right? um yeah what is bioluminescing and who is the audience
1: there so unlike in a cave in the deep sea even though it's it's still totally dark their animals don't really lose their eyes and because of that i mean i think that is because there's bioluminescence down there okay so it's it's the way that they can communicate most efficiently and effectively um but at 4,000 meters, there's everything from sea cucumbers to crinoids, which are sea lilies that are that are also like starfish relatives.
0: But they don't um, have eyes.
1: Gel- they don't have eyes. So a lot of the things that emit light are not seen by okay. light. But ah. there are fish and shrimp and things like that down so, there that can see the bioluminescence.
0: So but, what's in it for a crinoid? Yeah. I thought those were filter feeders.
1: Yeah, they are. There's a lot of things like... Um, There's a lot of octocorals, which are like bamboo corals and deep sea um, branching corals Mm -hmm. are super bioluminescent, just incredible. Like sometimes we literally with the uh, sub, with the ROV, we take a paintbrush and we'll brush it along the the branches of these things. And it's like you're painting with light because wherever you've, wherever you brush it, it starts to light up. Um, Okay. So this is, this is so they
0: don't get eaten. This is to be like, go away, go away. Or?
1: It's presumably, yeah, it's either to, I mean, there's a bunch of, you know, we can talk about all the different functions that organisms supposed to use bioluminescence for. Um, in the case of these attached organism, like C-pens and, C- and corals and crinoids, it's either thought to be like a burglar alarm. So it attracts a predator of whatever's bothering them. Or my former advisor, Jim Case, thought that it was like apparent motion where it would, seem like something was moving away but um but it wasn't actually moving away but the light was kind of moving there's also their their eyes are like super sensitive and they don't see things very much that the predators so if you get a big blinding flash it can be just like us getting a flash bulb going off in our face where you're you're temporarily blinded or stunned and there's even some cases in jellies where sort of sp- speculate that the bioluminescence is warning coloration, like in a brightly colored butterfly, for example, you would think that that would attract attention, but it's actually just a warning that I'm not really that good to eat. So for a jellyfish or a coral that also has stinging cells, you could be saying, you know, look, I know you found me, but you you don't want to mess with me because you're going to get stung.
0: Okay. And what about fish? When fish are bioluminescent, what are their reasons?
1: So fish use it for, I would say, at least four different reasons. Um, so one of them is called counter and we see it in a, a lot of fish, squid and shrimp. They'll have light organs just along their belly, even sharks. Um, and they use this to, as like an invisibility cloak to block out their silhouette from the dim light that's coming from above. So there's a lot of predators down there that have upward directed eyes, or they're, they're just looking up and they're looking for a shadow swimming over their head from the, the very dim blue light coming from the top. And you can mask yourself from being detected by replacing that light with your own light organs on your bellies. And okay. they, they go to great lengths to match it. They'll match the intensity, but they'll even match the color. So there's some squid that will shift from blue to green Depending on if they're shallow, uh counterilluminating against moonlight or deeper counter illuminating against the more blue um, daylight. Oh, that's
0: so really that's incredible. one function. So they have yeah, they so they have different enzymes, not just one type of well, luciferin.
1: Right. Or so I mean, how often do you do the luciferase. Mm-hmm. The luciferase can control it, like in fireflies. Um, there's fireflies that come on at different times in the evening and they'll have a range from green to yellow, and those are all controlled by the same light emitting molecule, but a different luciferase sequence causes Mm -hmm. a different colors. In the ocean, the squid are um, turning on and off different sets of photophores, just like they have different sets of chromatophores for changing their coloration.
0: Oops, I have to jump in and say that photophores are organs on marine organisms, such as fish or cephalopods that produce light, And chromatophores are cells that produce coloration.
1: And in some cases, the photophores can have um, little filters over them, like color filter over it. But actually, I don't know. I don't know if that's entirely explains it. If if they have two different luciferases for the different sets of light organs. No,
0: but But, really, so that's
1: just one function for fish. Mm -hmm. But they also use it as searchlights to find prey. They have ones forward directed on the front of their head to to shine out like little headlights and in some cases those are red so that only the fish can see the light and their prey can't see it um then there's also angler fish and things that have other lures that they stick out and wiggle around to glow and attract and then there's ones that have really bright the ones i was talking about that are blinding have these light organs that we call stern chasers and it's these two really bright light organs just right in front of the tail fin, and so they'll flash those really quickly and briefly as they dart away. But some actually, there's a fifth one where, um, there's a fish called a tube shoulder that will squirt out bioluminescent cloud so to swim away so it can leave a smoke screen, and that's that's another pretty common function. But you know, that's just within fish, that's like five different reasons. Oh, and attracting mates, so there's some that are thought to school and have species specific and sex specific photophore patterns light emitting dots on their sides kind of like a constellation of stars that uh, are thought to attract mates so
0: wow okay who who knew the deep sea was such a crazy place that's, oh, that's and that's
1: just what we know it's really hard to observe all this stuff as you might guess so
0: well how um, do you get it up to the surface and into your laboratory that must also be a bit of a a feat
1: yeah i mean people always expect things to explode when we bring them up to the surface but really that is more of a problem in a fish that has a gas filled swim bladder mm-hmm. so the air will the the gas that's in there will expand as they come mm-hmm. to the shallower depths but most of the things and even the fish that are down in the deep don't have any gas space so they're they're kind of liquid inside liquid out and pressure until you get down to maybe 3000 meters the pressure doesn't seem to be that big of an issue for their viability when we get them up to the surface so we collect them really gently into these tubes they're sort of the size of a paint can and just bring them up and unload them from the ROV and try to keep them as cold as possible okay while we're processing them.
0: so is that is it i guess you're doing this with robot arms is that, is it tricky to, to screw the lid on a jar with robot
1: armor? <laughs> yeah. Well, so we have, I mean, it is like a video game. We literally have like a joystick that's from a fighter plane um, to control the vehicle going left, right. And then we have one for your left hand that is going up and down. So you, you do have to fly this huge vehicle around a tiny jelly that may be the size of a grape or something. Um, but the samplers, so you move the sampler over the vehicle and then there's hydraulics to operate these two sliding lids that close the top and the bottom simultaneously and seal it. So we don't actually have to like have a separate hand to screw the lid on. Oh,
0: okay. We use
1: these, these actuators
0: is your whole little remotely operated vehicle is really just a big sampling device on some level with cameras and yeah. And and lights and all sorts of gizmos. So, you know, what depth you're at and what temperature and. All that kind of stuff. Exactly. And then are these Yeah,
1: so we it can be reconfigured. If you're working on the bottom, then you do pick stuff up with a little claw, mm-hmm. you know, and like picking flowers or something and, and put it into a tray. But when we are working in the water column, the between the surface and the seafloor, mm-hmm. we um we use these other sets of samplers like suction samplers and those samplers I was describing with the two lids to collect things that are drifting or or swimming in the water column.
0: How long can you keep these creatures alive in the laboratory?
1: It really varies. Um, Some of them we can keep alive for weeks or even months, actually. Oh,
0: that's amazing. Um,
1: Depending on what it is. Mm -hmm. And actually, so our sister institution is the Monterey Bay Aquarium down Mm -hmm. in Monterey. And we we work with, with people there. But they've been able to keep some things that I never thought they would be able to keep, these really fragile jellies and stuff. And they figured out ways, special chambers where they don't bump into the walls and where the water doesn't get all, um, accumulate ammonia, things like that. And so they've been able to keep some really fragile jellies for for weeks or months um, and even take them through their life cycle, um, which allows us to do some experiments, even with bioluminescence to see, you know, 15 generations later, is this organism still bioluminescent or did it lose its ability to bioluminesce? And so they're able to keep some things for pretty long, but on the other hand, there are some things where we literally have minutes from the time we get to the surface to try to document the, the jellies, because I think it's largely due to that pressure effect, mm-hmm. um, which we're also studying where their membranes just don't function mm-hmm. unless they're at high pressure. And so their skin will start to like melt or not oh. their skin, but their, their tissues yeah. will. Oh, the poor things start to melt. So I know it's very sad. So yeah,
0: well, it's weird. You're we a biologist, it, isn't it? You have to kill what you love.
1: I know. People always ask, you know, like, do you let them go? Do you, <laughs> you know what happens to <laughs> them after you collect them? And like, I hate to break it to you, <laughs> but on the other hand, it's it's so much more selective. It's not really indiscriminate. Like in, in a lot of cases in the past, you know, you'd traw a big net through the water. And you're just grabbing everything even a lot of things most of which you don't want is the non-target organisms so it's kind of like fishing or even just driving your car you know to work anything that splats on your windshield
0: yeah
1: it's oh, yeah. just like you know indiscriminate bycatch so for us we have um i think there's 12 of those d samplers 12 suction samplers and you, you can sometimes put two two things in a sampler so We'll go on a dive, and we'll select—you know—these are the forty things that we actually want to bring back and study out of the the hundreds or wow. thousands of things that we pass um, on the way. So,
0: so how do you? I oh, also, okay. So you you go with a goal. Otherwise, you otherwise you'd be a, like a kid yeah. in the candy shop. One of these. One well, of these. it is
1: still a little bit of the candy shop action because when you're down there, you never know what you're going to see. So sometimes we see unexpected things or rare rare things that. um you know, we haven't been able to study before, but I also, I mean, in the past in bioluminescence research in the early days, they would collect literally, they collected like 500,000 jellies to extract out the bioluminescent chemicals, purify them enough to like characterize them and study them. But now we can take one jelly and we can sequence its transcriptome or its genome, you know, all the genes, we can extract the the proteins and, and run them on, um, like do chemical characterization of them with mass spec or HPLC or something. So I, I just, I really think we're amplifying, we're getting the most out of these organisms that we can, even if it's a super fragile, rare one-off, you know, once we get its genome or its transcriptome, then we can ask all kinds of questions that you wouldn't have been able to ask before.
0: Oh, that's really, really cool. So what is the weirdest thing you've ever stumbled across down there in the deep sea
1: hmm well there's been a lot of interesting things i mean we found a octopus that was eating jellyfish it turns out that that whole group um preys on jellyfish we found a
0: oh is that is it weird for an octopus to eat jellyfish i've never thought about the dietary habits of octopuses octopi <laughs> <laughs> well i mean octopus. you just
1: think of them as eating crisp crabs and um you know especially in the in the deep sea squids will often eat fish and things like that so it was i think pretty unusual to think about an octopus that subsists on on jellies um
0: are there many calories in the jellyfish
1: well there aren't a lot but i think they make up for it in terms of volume like you know in the deep sea you can't really be that picky so okay if there's a niche, something will will end up filling that niche. I mean, some things are eating marine snow, which is basically like... Smart, well, there's all sorts of and, and good stuff in there, though. Detritus. It's very loaded with
0: carbs. Is some marine snow yeah. bioluminescent? It must be. I have to jump in here again and wave the flag for my old friend and former research subject, marine snow, which consists of myriad and sundry biological and mineral particles in the ocean, glommed together with mucopolysaccharides, known as of AKA snot, and generally sinking impressively quickly from the surface ocean to the deep sea.
1: It is, but by, well, I guess there's three types of bioluminescence associated with marine snow. Larvations make their own mucus house and they embed bioluminescent particles in them. So these are these little tiny tadpoles-shaped invertebrates. Yeah, so their houses will have bioluminescent inclusions that are just derived from them and they'll you know they'll remake a new one of these mucus houses a few times a day perhaps and so that when that becomes the nucleus of a marine snow particle it has bioluminescence but there's also um so that falls like that a get accumulated. the deep sea yeah it's just sort of that one would bioluminesce only when you touched it but okay. ones that are colonized by ba- bacteria will glow more or less continuously. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those are derived from fecal pellets. So like fish will have bacteria in their gut and then their, their fecal pellets will form a, a marine snow particle that glows. And then there's um, sometimes the dinoflagellates that you mentioned earlier, like the surface single celled algae, photosynthetic protozoans um will Oftentimes they'll be accumulated into marine snow. You know, marine snow just kind of it literally mm-hmm. snowballs as it goes down, and so it's collecting all these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even seen I've seen bioluminescent molts of crustaceans, so they have to molt. Um,
0: oh like wow! Other, so they're other really arthropods,
1: yeah, and so there'll be this like thin, shell and it it gets colonized by bacteria that are also bioluminescent. So I've seen like glowing molds of marine snow going down there. But yeah, I think the another of the weirdest ones is the siphonophore. So these are jellyfish relatives that can grow to be tens of meters long. And they have their own inherent bioluminescence often that we think is for a defensive function. But this one group has bioluminescent lures that it flicks. So it's like an anglerfish many times over that's attracting other tiny fish in the deep sea that was one of the fun ones um, i mean we found a mammoth tusk which is not really on topic but that was one of the more surprising things that we found
0: okay but not in bioluminescent there. no
1: no not that Wait, we just know.
0: in the monterey bay or where were you you just uh, not lying no in the it sediment. was
1: offshore it was on top of a seamount actually it was like
0: okay that's kilometers random kilometers offshore but in yeah, California, greater,
1: off California. Off
0: California. Yeah. Of California. Okay. Oh, wow. Poor thing. I wonder how it lost its tusk. Its it got <laughs> out there in the middle of the ocean. And then hit a seamount instead of going all the way to the yes. bottom. What do you think about potential technological applications of bioluminescence? I know there's a lot of interest in street lights. Um, and there's, I guess, some mm-hmm. uses in medicine. Um, and, of course... You know, it'd be really cool if you could have bioluminescent clothes or, or what do you think about any of this?
1: Well, so there are definitely the medical end of it. There's many, many important applications for bioluminescence and fluorescence in medicine. And and that sure is something that I think is promising to sort of invest your time and effort in. And I don't want to be a downer, but I think the streetlight idea is kind of a non-starter to some extent because for for it to be actually bioluminescence bioluminescence is actually really dim relative to even like an led light or something like that and so you would need a lot of chemicals that have to be somehow synthesized to produce produce enough quantities to make visible light you know at this point that is pretty expensive so even if you had a culture say of algae that would photosynthesize during the day. I actually have some in the room here with me. I mean, just keep them on a timer on the light. So the algae at night, they'll make some amount of light, but they'll they'll relatively quickly be exhausted. You know, if you shake up this yeah. culture of dinoflagellates, you may get you yeah. know, five minutes of fun of fun out of it. I, I actually had one of night.
0: those uh, about yeah. 20 years ago. Um okay. Noctiluca, I think it was. Um And, and yeah, you could, you could shake it a little bit and it would, it would glow for a few seconds. And, but then you'd have to wait if you wanted to see it again, you could definitely not read by it. Um, And then a visitor shook it way too hard. And that was the end. That was the end of those poor little dinoflagellates. That was way too much turbulence for them.
1: you know, it's, it's beautiful to see, but I think functionally, you know, the amount of energy that you're putting into growing the culture during the day Mm Is way more than you would get out from them at night. So, why not just have that LED be your source of a street light <laughs> at night? Um,
0: because it's cool. Hand, because it would be really yeah, cool. But I, mean, I cool hadn't thought of it. It's dim. I hadn't thought of doing it by growing uh, dinoflagellate mm-hmm. cultures in lights. So, you would actually that, ha- have a bioluminescent organism. And then I guess you would have to slowly flip the light see, over or right. shake it back and forth. Um, that's interesting. Uh, I mean, because I, I was trying to think, how can fun- you just have fungal- the enzyme and you know the, the chemicals there and get them to react and regenerate? But yeah, of course, yeah. if you just had an organism doing it, then a photosynthetic organism, you just feed it some nutrients every now and then. But yeah, but it's not very yeah. bright.
1: Well, so I think the more promising might be bacterial or fungal. So mushrooms and bacteria will will glow pretty much constantly if mm-hmm. there's oxygen there. And so those, I think, would be a little bit more promising for just like ambient space, like architectural applications. Mm-hmm. But again, they're dim. So the bacteria wouldn't need light, dark cycles to to grow, but they will need nutrients and mm-hmm. you know some kind of environmental control.
0: What kind of bacteria so could- are bioluminescent? I mean, I have... have to say i don't um
1: vibrio there's there's a thing called photobacterium and mm -hmm. vibrio so it's It's you know related to vibrio cholera yeah Mm -hmm. but you can you can grow them just in a broth you know lb or whatever you can grow them Mm -hmm. in a in a um, nutrient-rich broth so they could potentially you know go through the night or whatever but you'd still have to they'd still be relatively dim. Like you said, you you would hardly be able to read by them. The fungal one is actually pretty interesting because, so Ilya Yampolsky, some Russian um, scientists figured out the fungal bioluminescence chemistry. And the problem with a lot of these is that we know we have the luciferases cloned, but we don't have the biosynthetic pathway for the luciferins cloned. So if you make it, a transgenic organism, you put the luciferase in there from a jellyfish or photoprotein from a jellyfish, you have to provide the, the light emitting substrate somehow exogenously. Mm -hmm. So you can synthesize it in like a, you know, an organic chemistry setup. You can, you can create your own light emitting molecule, but you have to constantly provide that Mm -hmm. in order to actually get light out. So one of the things we're working on is what is the genetic pathway that organisms are using to make that molecule. And can we replicate that in some kind of a genetic cassette that would let them let you make bioluminescent things based on the jellyfish light emitter. Okay. So that's the, that's the negative case where we don't yet know how to do that. But in the other case, Ilya and his group figured out the fungal luciferin and luciferase system. So they have the way to make the light emitter and the, um, the control system and what's really cool about that is that the the required substrate for that luciferin is in plants
0: okay. so they've
1: taken the fungal system mm-hmm. and put it into plants and actually made glowing flowers and glowing plants and i think that that to me is the most promising thing that you could you know have for an industrial application because you don't have to provide this expensive organic molecule to get the light Mm -hmm. out the plants are going to be making it themselves okay and so Uh, they have a startup they have a company that actually is commercializing it but it's still really really dim
0: okay and it would just uh what's their angle on that just people would buy it because it's cool or
1: i think there is to some extent that there's been talk of like oh well we could have crops that tell you when they need water or when they're being attacked by Ah, insects So mm-hmm. they're like self-reporting mm-hmm. their status through okay. through light. You know, I, I think they have a bunch of things, angles that they're that okay. they're trying to do.
0: Ah, yeah. So it's not so all that, just funny that games. one I
1: think yeah, I would keep an eye on that one, but I think like there's a there's a town in France that is prototyping some bioluminescent like street signs and stuff like that. But I just don't I don't think it's all that promising to tell you the truth.
0: So what what's in it for a glow in the dark mushroom? Is it just saying don't step on me or what's it doing?
1: I think in that case, um, it's thought, so glows in general, glows are thought to be attractive and flashes are thought to be repellent. Okay. So, you know, in an otherwise dark environment, like the deep sea or a forest floor at night, you know, things are going to be attractive. They're going to see something glowing and they're going to go over to investigate what it is. So in the case of a mushroom, it's thought that insects will come trundling along. They may nibble some of it, but then they'll get spores on them. And as they go off, they'll distribute the spores. Oh, so okay. it's it's been at least, you know, one of the hypotheses that I've heard is that it's to help it propagate itself.
0: It's amazing that there are so many things that you can do with bioluminescence if you're out yeah, there in the, I mean, in the wild.
1: It's just a really efficient way for something to communicate you know like if you think about one of these dinoflagellates it's less than a millimeter long right so mm-hmm. if you think imagine a millimeter size organism sitting on your desktop and it wants to send you a signal you know like in one of those sci- movies where they're like the people are yelling out but they they can't hear them and the cat's coming to eat them or whatever but so if you imagine that one millimeter thing sitting on your desk it can't communicate through sound vibration chemicals you know there's really no other way but if it was dark and it made a little flash of light you would see it and you can see it from individual dinoflagellates so really
0: oh it's, yeah it's, wow
1: yeah you know like the specks when you shake up yeah, those jars yeah, yeah. you see all the little specks
0: no i remember um, uh the first cruise i was on back in during my life as mm-hmm. an oceanographer um i had mm-hmm. been working on the back deck of what ship was that the a tiny tiny little ship and it had been it, the whole back deck had been washed and i, I had been helping um collect the zooplankton and the nets mm-hmm. and then i got back to the cabin you know where there's six people in the cabin so you couldn't turn the lights on and then i was trying to take my wet shoes <laughs> off and they were flashing at me <laughs> and i realized oh my That's gosh awesome. i'm torturing little dinoflagellates here um
1: yeah yeah that's so yeah right. they're communicating to you over a great distance you know many many body lengths and you know to something many many orders of magnitude larger than them and in the in the ocean it, it's especially in the deep it's clear enough and the eyes are sensitive enough that um, people have calculated that they can probably function over like 50 or 100 meters wow a uh, bioluminescent signal can be
0: in can water. be seen so that's extraordinary yeah,
1: so it's just a really effective way to communicate, and it's probably you know the most common form of communication on the planet when you th- think about it.
0: So, what are dinoflagellates saying to each other?
1: So, dinoflagellates go back to two of the functions that we've discussed. One is thought to be directly deterring predators by like flashing in their face right when they're about to be eaten, and some some people did some experiments a while ago to show that that seemed to be happening. Um, but I think even more compelling is the burglar alarm, and there have been some experiments done on this too, where you have a tank with dinoflagellates in it, and so it ends up being like a minefield. So an organism swimming through there leaves a little bioluminescent trail behind it, <laughs> and then other other predators come and eat that. So you know, if you're a dinoflagellate and something is grazing on you, you you may not make it, but you're the rest of you. Um, in their surroundings, by this group effort of highlighting the predator, the grazer will uh, oh. will remove it from the ecosystem.
0: Dinoflagellates are so wicked, wicked, <laughs> wicked, wicked little plankton. Well, and um, they're just defending didn't, didn't themselves. Didn't they? Didn't they take out a submarine? There's this story about a submarine um, in the deep. And it was discovered by another submarine or or somebody, or maybe it was an airplane mm. trying to bomb it or whatever, because it, it just left this yeah. huge bioluminescent wake.
1: Yeah. In the eighties more, it's, I mean, I think even back in the seventies, eighties, nineties, the Navy would fund a lot of bioluminescence research because they wanted to understand it. And frankly, my advisor was asked, how do we like, how much, how much poison would it take to
0: <laughs> turn the o- turn
1: the ocean black, surrounding <laughs> you know our ships, so that, that they would not be bioluminescent? Okay, but so they're, they're worried about answer? even like, uh, I mean, basically, it's not possible. I think okay. he was just like,
0: oh, "What a terrible thing the, to do!"
1: At the naivety, I know. Um, but well, there it is a even for you've... like Navy navy SEAL operations and stuff oh, like yeah. that, like individual people or yeah. scuba divers uh, up to like a nuclear sub or something. I think, yeah, it, it can essentially reveal the location,
0: yeah, the same that's way it true. does in nature. That's true. I've been night diving, and you feel like Tinkerbell
1: <clears throat> mm-hmm. little
0: sparkles <laughs> that you like, yeah. Um, and you do feel like you're sort of saying, Hello, come eat me. I'm here. <laughs> um, well, uh, before I say thank you, do you have any parting remarks you'd like to make about bioluminescence or the deep sea or?
1: Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, I think I, I would like people to appreciate that it's really, it's really, really common. Like it is this magical thing, but it's also, there's about three quarters of the animals that we see f- with our ROV. All the way from surface to four thousand meters, three quarters of them are able to produce bioluminescence. Wow. So it's it's really common and diverse. Everything you know, from single celled organisms to starfish, and pretty much everything in between in the ocean has some some members that can make light. So just appreciate that it's it's out there and it's it's not an anomaly.
0: Oh, cool. Okay. No, it's a really magical world out there, and we we yeah we should remember that sometimes. So okay, well yeah. thank you, Steve, very much for your time. I appreciate that you're a busy guy running a big lab, and um, uh, enjoy your further explorations of the deep sea and of bioluminescent organisms.
1: Thanks, Christina. It's great to chat with you, and thanks for the interest in in my favorite topic.
0: Thank you for listening to Solar Punk Presence, a series embedded within the Solar Punk Futures podcast, written, hosted, and produced by Christina Della Rocha and Ariel Kroon. This podcast is a part of Solar Punk Magazine, which is published by Android Press, which is located on Kalapuya-Ulihi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Today, descendants are citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Community of Oregon, and the Confederated Tribes of the Silates Indians of Oregon. The opening and closing music for Solarpunk solar punk presence is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol and is available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. So, thank you again for listening, and until the next episode, stay solar punk.